So we're talking about what we tried to talk about last week was this idea that we come to Christ. We just don't come to Christ in a vacuum as an individual, but we're, we, we're, our sins are forgiven. When we call upon Christ, we say, Jesus, I realize I'm lost and, I, and I'm, hope, I'm in a hopeless and helpless condition. And unless you come into my life, all is lost. And we understand that he came to earth uh, and climbed up on a cross for us and he gave his life to give us new life. And not just to, so that we can go to heaven one day, but so that right now, here and now, we can have abundant life. Um, like I said last week, um, earth isn't a waiting room for heaven. It's not like we're waiting for Dr. Jesus to show up so that we can go to heaven. And so the other thing we talked about, we said, but, but Christ became, he came to earth and he, he placed us within a body, within a church. We, we are his people, a royal priesthood, the Bible says, that we're part of a family, that we have brothers and sisters now because of our common faith that we're part of a body, we're members of the body, and we went through all of that. And so the implications are that we are more than just ourselves. We're, we're involved in something bigger than ourselves. So that's why when you talk about a Christian, you say, where are you, lo- where are you connected to? What, what is your local assembly? And they say, I don't go to church because I don't like the hypocrites. And there are a whole bunch of hypocrites. I'm one of them. Okay, so let's just throw it out there. And there's, uh, but here's the thing. The Bible doesn't understand, it doesn't teach that a person is a Christian apart from the body any more than a severed hand laying on a sidewalk is a normal thing. It's not a normal thing. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so we are God's people. We have a purpose. We're a part of a family. And if you come to Jesus, you've been placed within this new community it's a place where God wants to use you. So we have a really, a very real connection. I want to talk more about that connection. Because as I said um, last week, in a group like this, you may or may not know some of the people. Maybe you don't even know the people around you. Probably you don't. And, 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 and so... There's these statements in the New Testament. We call them the one another statements. There's about 58 of them. And they go like this. Love one another. Admonish one another. Bear one another's burdens. Care for one another. Comfort one another. Forgive one another. Greet one another. Pray for one another. Spur on, uh, spur one another on to good works. Now, I want to ask you very candidly, have you done that this morning with the people around you? Or the people that you've met this morning? Some of you say, yeah, I did. I prayed for this person. We... Most of us would say, no. Why? Because I don't know them. Or because that's not, you know, it's not conducive to do it in this environment. We don't have time. And I would absolutely say I agree. So the question is, well, if, if, if there's 58 of these statements, it seems like these are pretty... By the way, there's one that says greeted each other with a holy kiss. How many of you did that this morning? Right? Some of you are going, no, but that sounds like a cool idea. And others are going, there's no way that that's going on with me. All right? Um, but the point is, the point I want you to see is, yes, you can't. It's, it's not working. You can't do it. And that's why we're going to challenge you at the end of this message to think about seriously connecting with a small group because in a small group, 
you can love each other. You can admonish one another. You can bear one another's burdens. You can care for one another. You can comfort one another. You can forgive one another. You can greet one another. You can pray for one another. You can, you can do all those things because you know them and they know you. Here's the idea I want you to look at. When we begin to understand the implications of the gospel, it changes how we respond to others. It changes how we respond to others. So I want to talk about uh, a real major conversion, a change, and how the church kind of handled it. Uh, so if you, turn, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 9, I'm going to re- be in Acts chapter 9. But I want to jump back a little bit because we're going to talk about a guy named Saul. Now, what was very common in the, in the Bible is sometimes God would get a hold of a person, like Abraham. And, and so his name, when he first met, was Abram. And then God made a promise with him, a covenant with him. And then his name was changed to Abraham. Okay, so this is a very common thing that happened all through the Bible. Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Okay, and, and, and so Paul... As we know him today, he started out as Saul, the persecutor of the church. And he was so bad that when the first martyr of the church, Stephen, was being stoned, Paul was there watching and approving and saying, yeah, that's it. And this, this event in the stoning of Stephen must have been one of those things where he said, I am all in for finding wherever I can find these Christians, dragging them out, and either throwing them in jail or killing them. I am all for that. That's what I'm for. And so that's where we pick up the passage in Acts chapter 9. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. Now, the the phrase followers of the way, that that was a reference used of the early Christians. They were followers of the way. Some believe that it was because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But, But the point is, that's what you need to understand. The followers of the way were the Christians. And it says he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, this was a dangerous time for the church. And let's just be honest. It's been a dangerous time for the church ever since the church was birthed. It's always been a dangerous time. It's a dangerous time for the church today. I mean, we have brothers and sisters in China. We have brothers and sisters in different parts of the world that are part of the church. They're calling upon Christ. He's their Savior. And, but they can't say that publicly. They can't reveal that publicly. They can't say, I'm a follower of Jesus, because that would be immediate death, immediate uh, prison. It would, so there's, it still goes on today that, that if you're part of the church, part of His church, it's a dangerous thing to be. Now, the other thing we need to understand, too, is the interesting thing is when, when, when the Bible uses the word church, it's the Greek word ekklesia, um, it's used, I don't know how many times, I forgot, a lot. But it's generally used, not generally, it's always used, except for a couple of, of incidences. It's always used of a local church. I mean, there's a, a, there's a use where Peter, you know, Jesus says, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Well, he's not talking about a local church there. He's talking about his universal church. 
that everybody who calls upon the Lord is part of this big thing that we call the universal church, that we're all Christians. And we have all these denominations. We have all these different thing, uh, you know, beliefs and denominations. But the bottom line is people who have called upon the Lord and Jesus is coming in their lives and they have the Holy Spirit within them. They're part of this universal church. And Jesus says, I'm going to build this huge church. But then the rest of the Bible, as you read through it, when they talk about the church, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus or the churches of this region. He's talking about local assemblies, local churches that are getting together. Okay? So we're all part of something bigger than ourselves. We're all part of the big church. But in the same sense, we're, we, we are called to be part of something smaller, the local church. And so Saul is dragging Christians out to jail, even to their deaths. And he's very effective in making a name for himself until one day, one day, he's going down a road in Damascus, to Damascus. And let's pick that up. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So on the road to Damascus, somehow or another, Jesus manifested himself to Saul. And he says, Saul, you're not persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. Now, in another part of the Bible, the, the, the church is described as the bride of Christ, that it's his bride. And, and you know, it's you know, if you're a husband and somebody is, a, you know, attacking or bringing your bride in danger, you're saying you mess with her, you mess with me. Essentially, that's what Jesus is saying. You're messing with my bride here. You're messing with my church here. You're persecuting them, and so you're persecuting me. And so, Paul is going on. He's he's going out. He's persecuting the churches, and he meets Jesus on the road. And. I don't have time to go through the rest of the chapter right now, and every, but here's what happens. Essentially what has happened is that Saul is struck blind, and God turns his heart, and he becomes a follower of Christ. The ones he's persecuted, now he belongs to them, and it's just like, the 180 it's a total 180 but so the question is how is god going how is god going to bring this outsider into his church how will god take a person who has caused so much pain and suffering and damage into a place where he's going to be part of his church how's he going to do it because he is feared by the christians he is avoided he is like the worst enemy he's like the hitler the mussolini he's He's the Atola. He's the, like the worst possible enemy of the church, right? And so he's come to Christ. So what would you think if, if he killed your parents or he dragged your, your sons and your daughters to prison and he persecuted you and you, you heard now that he'd become a Christian? What would you think? What would you think? Well, you think it's just a scam. Because everybody's gone underground. He can't find people. So he's going to try to find a way to get people to come up. So God had a plan. And here it is. He meets this guy. God meets with the guy, Ananias. Now there was a believer in Damascus. And I'm, I'm reading the same chapter. And I'm at verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. 
the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to the straight street to the house of Judas. Uh, Not Judas Iscariot. Judas was a very common name in that day. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarshish named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. So Paul is blind and Ananias now gets his vision from God and he says, there's this guy named Paul. I mean, Ananias must have said, yeah, or Saul. Yeah, I kind of know who he is. You know, And we're going to see that in a moment. Now, it's interesting because Paul is blind and blindness is used in the scripture very, very um, symbolically. And it's a picture of something like, for instance, it's interesting because in, in some of the Gospels you read about Jesus and he's revealing his power and he's healing people and he's doing these different things and he's doing these teachings and his disciples are just like, it's like totally over their heads. They're not getting it. And, and they don't understand, right? And so then all of a sudden Jesus heals a man who's blind. And it's like, okay, I could see a little bit. Okay, I could see a little more. Okay, I could see a lot. And, and it's like... And so the writer of the gospel is the way that they, the reason they put those stories together, I think, in the scripture, the reason they put those together was what the writer is trying to say is this man was physically blind and he slowly but surely began to see he got his sight back. And what he's saying is the disciples at this point are blind. They're not really seeing too well. (laughs) They're not getting it. And, and so here we see Saul, who is a persecutor of the church. Spiritually speaking, he's absolutely blind. And God says, okay, you need to go physically blind because we're going to turn your heart. We're going to open your eyes up. The scales are going to come off. And you're going to see things you've never seen before because not only will you get your physical sight back, but you're going to get a spiritual sight that you've never had in your life. Your heart's going to be turned. Your eyes are going to be open. And you're going to see things the way they are. And you're going to be aghast at what you've been doing. I have uh, had people in my uh, small groups through the years, and as we've started to study, sometimes they've been followers of Christ, sometimes they haven't. And we'll start going through and they'll come to Christ or they'll understand who Jesus is and call upon him. And they get, some of them get mad. They get angry. And they'll say something like, I went to church my whole life and I never saw this. They never taught this. They never told me this stuff. Why didn't they teach me this stuff? And I just say, you know what? They may have. But when you're blind, spiritually, you can't see it. And I remember when I was 18 years old and I went to a Bible study. And God turned my heart. God gave me sight. And I began to look at the Bible and I began to see things that I never saw before. And I said, this is right. This is, this is true. This is from God. This is and, and and I thought, why didn't I see this before? And the reason I didn't see it before is because some of you right now, 
You have people in your lives, people you care about, people you love, people that are close to you. You've been praying for them. You've been, you've been, doing, every, you've been doing everything except cartwheels. You can't do cartwheels. So you've been doing everything you have, and you just say, what am I going to do? Because no matter what you do, they just don't get it. Right? Am I right? And you go, what do you do with a person who just doesn't get it? And, and the answer is you pray for them. You pray, God, take the scales off their eye. Give them sight because they're blind and they can't see it. And, and you know, and they say, well, maybe I should try this argument. or maybe I should. And I just say, pray. Because when God turns a heart, everything turns. So Ananias hears this and he says, you want me to go talk to who? About what? And that's what he says. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. He not only knows who Saul is, he knows the authority that Saul's been given. He knows that Saul just isn't just a bad guy, but he's got authority behind him. So he knows very clearly who this man is. He absolutely knows that. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, to kings, and as well to the people of Israel. And I will show you how much he he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul, and he laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately Saul's life turned on a dime. Now we have to understand what took place here. Ananias had to come overcome some huge barriers. This was an enemy. It's very likely that Saul had done damage to people close to him, maybe family members, certainly people, friends that he knew, who were probably in prison and maybe dead because of what, what Saul was doing and had been doing. And so when he, when he does this, he had, he, he had to come to a place, he had to come to a place where not only did he have to trust Saul, he had to forgive him. And, and, you know, that's kind of where we're at. Because it's one thing to say, I love the fact that I'm part of his community. But there's some people out there that I don't want to be part of his community. They don't belong there. They're evil. They're wicked. They've done terrible damage to me. And you may have people in your life and you say, I can't even begin to pray that God would become real in their lives because I hate them so much. I'm so, I, I don't, I, and, and this is what Ananias had to go through. This is what he had to overcome. He had to overcome a barrier that said, this is a man who is the enemy. And you're now you're telling me he's turned and he's going to be, and yes, because the new community is a part uh, when you're part of new community, there's new relationships, there's no favoritism. And, and there's a couple of things I want to say about this. The new community moves us past classes, races, vocations, and even past deeds. 
Is there somebody that you said, you know, they'll never be part of the church. God won't ever do that because they're too wicked, they're too weak. Maybe you're here and you say, I've, I've done too many terrible things. I think an interesting conversation would be to sit down and Paul, with Paul and say, how do you deal with it? How do you, how do you put it together now that you're one of his followers and you've done, you, you, know, you know all the damage you've done in, to the church? You know all these people that you took that were his children, his followers. And, and I think that's one of the things that motivated Paul. A lot of the New Testament we read is written by Paul. See, when we come to Christ, we're placed into a new community with other believers that transcends all man-made sociological barriers. It transcends status ladders and pecking orders. We have a new basis for building relationships with other Christians across traditional cultural barriers. There's no racism. There's no classism. There's no cultural imperialism. Um, you know, and by the way, and, and, I'm, and I don't mean to say this to be you know, to, to knock down America. I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American and born in the United States. Um, but let's just be clear. We need to be very careful when we start saying America is God's chosen people over every other nation of the world. We, we need to be very careful about that. I think we're reading, reading Americanism into it. I, I just think it's, well, let's put it this way. Let's say America is one of God's children. And then other countries are his other children. As a parent, are you good with that? Are you good with saying, yeah, you're my favorite son. You're my favorite son. You're my favorite daughter. Maybe you were raised with parents like that and you weren't the favorite son or daughter. How'd that make you feel? Pretty good? How did you feel about your parents? See, that's what I mean about cultural imperialism, that we, we think that our culture is the best and we're better than all the other nations and God is blessing I just, just be real careful about that. I, I just want to say that there are Christian brothers and sisters in all other nations, in all other countries, that God loves them as much as He loves us. Let's just not, let's just not fall for that. Let's just not, let's just not do that. Um, because our common bond is Jesus. The gospel brings a new cultural understanding into our lives. Because of the gospel, we realize, and I said this before, the ground is level at the cross. It doesn't matter what your profession is, how educated you are, how much money you have, how connected you are, where you were born, what color your skin is, what uh, gender you are. It doesn't matter because below the cross, we are all sinners lost in need of a Savior. And we come to Christ, we come, become part of a body. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, Paul puts it this way in, in Acts, or Romans 15, 7. He says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. And, and that's one of the dangers that we have is that we're not accepting of others because of how they look, where they're from. And, and we, we have all these barriers that we set up. And we have to say, you know what? Accept one another as Christ has accepted me. If they are a, a follower of Christ, then they're my brother. They're my sister. And, and nothing can separate uh, us because of the common bond we have because of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I, I did rag Brian, and you know, you're going to be tired of listening to me pull little illustrations out, but I've got to redeem the week somehow, so I'll do it this, this way. And you know, I was riding in rag Brian, and I said to uh, Joe Fuller, who was riding with me, and um, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, and I said, you know, Joe, I said, um, 
I think this is okay because we were riding through a difficult wind, you know, wind in our face. And I said, but I don't think I would do this for vacation. And I think he said, well, we are. <laughs> I go, yeah, I know that. <laughs> it just dawned on me. But here, here's what I've told to people because they say, well, what, what about the riders? Because, oh, I could never do that. And I say, here's what I tell people. I say, you could take 40 riders from Ragbri, which, by the way, if you don't know what Ragbri is, it's a ride across America. It's not a race. It's a ride. They make that very clear. And you basically, it's a traveling county fair. Basically, you ride about 15, 20 miles. You stop at a town. You eat. You go another 10 or 15 miles. You stop at a town. You eat. And, and then you stop at night. You eat. And, you know, it's just like, that's what you do. I mean, that's uh, every day you do that. Now, you do a lot of riding, you know. But So if you took 40 people that rode in Ragbri, okay, and you dress them up in street clothes, and you put them on stage, and if, you had, if I had a multiple-choice question and say, what is the common thing that all of these people have done, or, or what's the common theme with all these people? And one of those was they rode across Iowa on a bike. Nobody would pick that, because i got to be honest with you, there are people on bikes that, I, that were like, they were old And it really bothered me when we're going up a hill and they're going ahead of me. And I'm thinking, man. Or they're, they're bigger, okay? They're, like, they're bigger. Big, big, bigger, okay? And you just would say, you can't possibly ride that across Iowa. Or the dad that's riding a bike and he's got a, like a seven-year-old girl on the back passing me up a hill. And the girl's just sitting there. She's not pedaling. She's not working. And dad's going like this. And I'm, but, but here's the thing. You know, if you put those 40 people on stage, you would say, what do they have in common? And you would say, it would be something else. It wouldn't be that. In the same way, if you were to take 40 Christians from all over America and all over the world and put them on a stage and say, what do these people all have in common? And you say, some of them are doctors, some of them are, you know, teachers, some of them are insurance agents or whatever. You know, you, what, what do they all have in common? People would say, I have no idea what they have in common. But we know. It's interesting, some of the uh, writers, you get into conversation, and I remember I was talking to one person and I was and he was writing, and I said, "So what do you do?" And he says, "Well, I'm a surgeon." And you know, I was thinking, "Well, you don't ride a bike very well. I hope you I hope you're a better surgeon than you are riding a bike." But, but no, I didn't really think that. But but, but you, you get my point. It's like you, you you say you don't look like that right now. You look like a guy on a bike. You know, I mean, seriously. But. That's what new community is. It's people that are brought from all different walks of life, from all different economic places, from all different racial backgrounds, from all different cultural backgrounds. We're brought together in this universal thing we call the church so that when we go to Nigeria or Mali, West Africa, or Haiti, or 
anywhere in the world and, we, and they say, my Lord is Jesus Christ, we immediately have a common bond with them. Even if we can't speak their language, we know that they, they know what we know and their eyes have turned. And we say there's something there that is common among the two of us, the three of us, the four of us. So the new, this new community uh, moves us past plain favorites that were equally accepting and welcoming and concerned for each other. Paul says this in Corinthians, have equal concern for one another. By the way, the last two verses I read, you know who they're from? The Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, who used to persecute the church. And if Ananias had not been faithful to God to carry out his mission, how would Paul have been how would he have gotten credibility? How would he have been able to do and give us what we have today in the, in, the, in the New Testament? You know, there's no place for playing favorites with a new community. One of the greatest witnesses, Jesus said this, one of the greatest witnesses to the world that I'm alive and real is how you treat one another. He said this in John 13. He says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The brother of Jesus, James, said this. He said this in James chapter 2. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you could stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't that discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? And what James is saying is the same thing that Jesus said. It's the same thing that Paul is saying to us. He said, when we come to Christ, there's an equality. There's a common bond. That we can't make those worldly divisions because of race or color of skin or gender or wealth. Uh, we, we can't do that anymore. We, we can't do that. Being part of this new community changes how we relate and treat each other. And this is clearly illustrated uh, in the Scriptures. Now, so, so essentially what I've been trying to do for most of our time here is this. I've been trying to tell you that if you've come to Christ, and we've, in America, make coming to Christ a very individualistic thing, a very personal thing, and it is. But it's more than that. It's a community thing. And we're part of a community. And we've, we're, we're connected to a community. And some of you maybe have never wrestled with that. You feel like, I don't feel like I need to be part of any community or connected to any community. I want to keep my options open. And, and that's fine. You, have, you can have that attitude. But it's not a biblical attitude. Because it says that you're part of a body. You're part of a family. You are connected not just to every other Christian in the world and every other Christian of history, but you're connected to a local, or you should be connected to a local community. Now, why should you be part of a small group? Because in a, in a community like this, this size of a group, you really can't connect to carry out the one in other states. It can't happen. It's impossible, generally speaking. So why should you be part of a small group this fall? Simply, let me give you three quick reasons. Number one, life change tends to happen best in circles, not rows. We're in rows now, and the, the point is 
You're not facing each other. You're not getting to know each other. You're not talking with each other. And in a small group, you sit in a circle. You get to know each other. You, you, men have men they can stand toe to toe and eyeball to eyeball with. Women can get, to, and you can get friendships. And then you can begin to bear one another's burdens and forgive one another because you'll say or do things that will cause you to have to work on that. This happens within a small group. And within a small group, you'll be challenged, encouraged, supported, and loved on a very different level than you ever could be here. Secondly, small groups prove the best lab environment for one anothering. And like I said at the beginning, there's 58 one another's. This is the great lab where this plays itself out. In a small group, you will know and you will one another with one another. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know what I mean. Number three, small groups are great environments to help people come to Christ. I came to Christ through a small group. It happened to be a Bible study, but it was a small group of friends. And here's what I want you to know. Sometimes one of the best things, one of the reasons people never, my older brother Pat came to Christ before me. And he came home one day at dinner and said, I have an announcement to make. I have five brothers, six boys, five brothers. And Pat is uh, second from the top, and I'm in the middle. And he came home and he said, I just want you to know that you're all going to hell. (laughs) Didn't really go over well in our family. Because we went to church every week and confession once a month. And uh, so I kind of had a kind of... And Pat and I kind of used to go back and forth. But that's neither here nor there. That's for a counseling session later on. (laughs) The point I want you to see is this. Some of his friends were my friends. And we, they invited me to come to a Bible study. And I was leery about it. And I was like, okay, I'll come because, not because of my brother, because of my friends. And it was through that Bible study that I came to Christ. And I just want to say that it may be some of you would have that same testimony. It was through this person. It was through this group of people. It was through being A small group is an opportunity for people to come in and see other Christians love one another in very real ways where they come to a place and say, I can't dismiss Christianity because I've now met some people that I love and respect and love and respect me who are followers of Jesus. And the only reason I can put my finger on it, why they are that way, is because they know Him. And I don't know Him. And they have something I don't have and I desperately want it. And so a small group is a great place for people to come to faith in Jesus. They won't come to an environment like this. So this is an opportunity for many good things to happen. So we've asked you to step out in your uh, today in our services to maybe find a place to serve. Use your gift. The second thing I'm going to challenge you to do is to sign up. If you're not part of a small group, sign up today. And we made it pretty easy. You walked in and you saw these big things called kiosks out there with pictures of people. And they are good-looking people. And I stepped in it last night. Because I said, they're good-looking people. And I said something about, what about the last group? And I'm going to step in it again right now, yes. Um, What about that last group of people that uh, they're waiting for their group to fill up? One of the groups is already filled up. And it's a fantastic-looking group of leaders there. 
But these, these are 12 new groups that just you can just sign up, put your name, put your phone number, and you're going to be part of that group. It's a short run group, so you get to know these people for six, I think it's six to eight weeks, something like, don't quote me on it, it's at least six, I don't know if it goes to eight, but uh, you'll be able to experience a small group, and maybe at the end you'll say, I want to be part of this group again, maybe you'll say, you know, I like the small group idea, but I didn't really connect, fine, we'll connect you somewhere else, but you can sign up today, and if you'd like to do that, we would, uh, we, I think, made it quite easy to do that. But we want to get as many people as possible in this small group environment so the one another's of Scripture can be carried out. So that you can understand you're not an individual. You're not, you are part of something bigger. You're part of the body. You're part of the family. And when you get to experience that and live that out, you'll begin to see God working in your life. And you'll begin to develop some really close personal friends. And as the church grows bigger, it must grow smaller. The way it grows smaller is by you getting connected to a group of people who love you and are loved by you and you connect with them. And so this is an opportunity for that to take place. If you want it to, you can do it. It's going to have to be up to you to do it. So I want to lead you in prayer. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for the church that uh, breaks all the barriers. And though this world may have barriers, sociological or economical or racial There's no barriers in your kingdom, in your church. Uh, You didn't just die for a certain group of people. As we stand below the cross and we look up, we realize there's one Savior who gave his life and shed his blood for us. Help us to remember that we're never too far gone because if anybody was really out there... Saul was, and yet you turned his heart, you opened his eyes, and today he is one of the great leaders of the early church, and that happened later in his life, and so in a sense, Father, as long as we're drawing a breath, there's something you can do in our lives, but Father, I pray that we would do something to get, to celebrate our connection to the body of Christ, the family that you put us in, that we would see that we are We have a responsibility and a connection that we can't deny and that we desperately need. So however your spirit causes us to respond, help us to be obedient so that we can grow in the way that you've called us to grow within community. We ask this in Jesus' name.